Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed any or all of the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. On today's show, Chris L. shares his story of a life ruled by alcoholism until he got sober in AA in 2011. Raised by loving parents, he had a spiritual realization of the universe at age five that was cut short at age nine with the tragic death of his 12-year-old sister. As inconsolable grief upended his family, Chris's spiritual and religious beliefs were mostly severed while drinking became his respite during his adolescent years. Finding additional solace in music, Chris embarked on a successful career as a musician whose functional alcoholism only accelerated his inevitable plunge to the bottom. Though the well-known frontman for the band in which he had played had gotten sober and invited Chris to do the same, Chris refused to admit his own alcoholism. He kept drinking for many more years, despite additional tragedies and horrible outcomes. As the disease rapidly drained any regard for his own life, Chris reached the end of a long rope, and he finally uttered the three words that have saved countless alcoholics, God help me. Chris's long journey to the doors of AA culminated in the start of a new life. He gave himself wholeheartedly to the program and the fellowship, and has stayed sober amidst triumphs and tragedies along the way. His commitment to service work and practicing the principles is unmistakable as he continues his passionate work in the music business. His easygoing demeanor and enthusiasm for sobriety are readily apparent and create a warm, friendly attraction to what Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. I believe Chris's story will touch the hearts of those who hear his words. So please enjoy the next hour with my friend and AA brother, Chris L. My name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hi, Howard. It's a, it's a pretty simple question. I'll, I'll, I'll credit you for getting that one right. Okay. <laughs> or someone calls on you, you go, huh? <laughs> that doesn't work out real well. Either. You know, I have said things, what, me? Okay. What, me? Oh, you, you must be kidding. You must be talking about the other Howard. No, I There's, know, because oh. sometimes people will say, hey, I'm going I'm to call on, and they'll point to me like, and they'll say my name and go, oh, me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure not pointing through me to the guy in back over there? <laughs> I really appreciate you joining me today on AA Recovery Interviews. It's a treat for me to have someone as highly recommended as you were by one of our previous guests, Pat C., out of Austin. And uh, But you're not in Austin tonight, are you? You're somewhere else. No, I am traveling for work in Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. What's it, about 115 there today? You know, last time I checked, it was 110, and it was supposed to get maybe 112 or 13. Oh, man, that's crazy. One day, someone will be listening to this podcast when it's about 30 degrees outside, and they won't know what, what, what the heck we're talking about. But uh, um, So your, your work, in fact, one of the things I want to let you know uh, about the format of what I do <laughs> is I try and make sure that the entire podcast is anonymous, meaning that I won't, of course, no pictures, uh, First names only, last initial. And when it comes to any names of any facilities or anything that would be readily identifiable, I edit that out as well. Now, I know that you play, you're playing in a band, and uh, I try and hold to the 12 traditions pretty cleanly to make sure that nobody is readily identified by virtue of what they do for a living. To me, the interesting thing about that tradition, and what, the way it is that I don't really want to know who's sharing, because it's more of a pure message without it being filtered through my human condition to say, oh, I should really listen to this guy because I figured out that he's that guy. So I should maybe listen a little more carefully, which is going to be my tendency is just a regular old human. 
I appreciate that. That's a great way to look at it. And as a matter of fact, I have a tendency to do the same thing, especially when I'm interviewing somebody who I know I could easily look up on Google and find out all about them. I don't do that because I want it to be pure. Now, if, if I know about you through friends in the program, well, that's one thing. But, you know, everybody's got a Google profile or a Facebook profile. I don't go near that stuff because I want it to be as uh, free of an exchange as possible. So how did a guy like you get to be an alcoholic? You know, it was actually a, a very slow process in my case and that when I met alcohol mm -hmm. it was a thing that actually I, I realized for me that it became some type of a, a comfort I got really a short story is is that as time went on the so-called episodes with comfort became more frequent until finally uh, it was all about trying to just be comfortable through the use of alcohol and when you found out that alcohol could give you comfort, you actually sought it out. Yeah, at first I wasn't consciously even aware that I was that, that those things that I never put those mm -hmm. together. I didn't think, well, something's going on and I need comfort. I need to go get alcohol. I call it the duality of the human being and that I didn't see myself doing that for that reason. But there was an inadvertent association with feeling comfort because of that. It's a very strange blind spot. People say, well, you know, you know, they're 20 or so. They go, well, you know, I, I pretty much knew I was an alcoholic when I was five. And my question is, did you know that then? Or is it the way you can contextualize that now with what you've come to where you've grown to? And it's an observation of your life back when to be able to go back and examine that and go, you know, that's what was going on. Well, that's kind of like what I find when I'm interviewing people and I say, uh, when did you start drinking? And they talk about the time when they were three years old and someone offered them a tablespoon of beer. What I'm talking about is when did you first start drinking on your own volition? Now, you've been sober a pretty long time, haven't you? Over 12 years. My sobriety date is January 11th, 2011. Was that the first time you tried getting sober? Yes. And that, that was the first time that I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous feeling that there was a part of my life that had ended. Hmm. Uh, this kind of came out in a phrase, my life had ended, and I didn't know what to do with an ended life. Hmm. That was that interior life of mine. Yeah, I get that. So that interior life was something that was completely unknown to the rest of the people around you until you decided to share it with them. The interior life that I think that everybody was well aware of was how that inner me that expressed itself through my words, my actions, uh -huh. or what I might put pen to paper about, become like the only real expression of who you are. And it's manifested through how you live your life. What are your actions? What do you yeah. say? Is that mind? Is that spirit? Is it something locked in subconscious that comes to the conscious mind? And I've told myself many times, you have to stop drinking. Yeah. Two days later, I'm drinking again because I, and I noticed I have a drink. What was yourself telling you when you were telling yourself you ought to stop drinking? What was the response that you were getting back? Uh, it was fear. I mean, the feedback was that this is frightening and it's this is almost this seems impossible. You mean to not drink? Oh, yeah, yeah. When I look at the literature in the big book, it says we drink because we like the, the effect produced by alcohol. I realized, not at the time, but in my sobriety, uh -huh. that I really couldn't stand the effect of living without alcohol, the effect of, that was produced by not drinking. And, and it's one of these shifts where you go, when I drank, I go, everything feels fine now, but it, but that's what I had to have because when I wasn't drinking, everything felt so not not okay. Um, and I had a moment. I'll just tell you about this. I um, I walked into my my studio. I lived on a spread of land, and this was one day. And my wife and my kids were coming back in the car, and I saw them coming up the drive at about three hundred foot driveway. And I went, "Oh my God, they're home!" And I remember having the brief thought: "I go, what kind of thought is that to have? What kind of impulse is that?" And a couple of days later. I walked back into that same studio and I froze. Somebody somebody said, you know what? You were having a catharsis because I didn't know whether it was five seconds or whether it was an hour or 10 minutes. And then these words came out of me that just said, God help me. And then all of a sudden, it was as if somebody else, not me of my mind, was going over. And I was picking up the phone and dialing a number. Uh -huh. There was no comprehension or anything about what I was doing. Uh -huh. I dialed a number, and then a friend that I knew who was five years sober uh -huh. called up. He said, 
hey, what's going on? And I just said, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, why don't you go to a meeting? And I remember thinking, I go, what kind of thing is that to say to somebody like that? (laughs) (laughs) What did you expect them to say? (laughs) I didn't, I don't know. But I, and then, and I said, well, I don't know where any are. He goes, I know there's one about five or 10 minutes from where you live. And that it's, uh, if I remember correctly, it's on Mondays and Fridays. And I hung up the phone and I went over there and I've never left. Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, was was everything till you were looking out that window, was everything leading up to that moment when you saw your family coming up the driveway and you had that feeling like you wish they weren't coming up or whatever the thought was, was everything leading up to that or was that kind of a sudden revelation? I mean, as you look back from that, did you say, yeah, things are starting to unravel and I noticed some problems, but then I did something else and then, and I ended up at that point kind of by surprise. Was that the kind of situation it was? No, not huh. at all. I think that just like recovery itself, that in my case, the whole thing in my alcoholism was something that had been a long journey, but a steady and an unrelenting one. I did a lot of work with this. And and to the credit of all of our literature and everybody Uh in the program, my first sponsor, Mike H. and Pat, all these things, they all kind of led me to a lot of other type of help that were really all program related people who were professionals and whatnot. And I had the good fortune of meeting these people and they helped me do a lot of digging around in what had gone on in my life previous to that moment. Because the quandary is that when I came in, I had my wife and I just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary together. We have two children. Uh I've had a really good career Mm -hmm. in what I do. It's been highly successful. Mm -hmm. I have houses I have all kinds of things to go, but wait a minute, you can't have that kind of stuff if you're an alcoholic because you lose all those things that brings you to the point of surrender that you come in or was the most common story that I heard. Yeah. I thought, well, that's not my story. So what is my story? And we think, well, I know my story, but we give give the details of I was born here on this date. And, you know, I grew up in that town. I went to these schools and I started working and I had these jobs and then I started drinking and now here I am. But I went back. I worked with somebody that actually had me go back and say, this person's 52 years sober. She said, if we're going to work together, I want to know everything about your family history on both sides. Going back, I go, my family history? I go, how far do back do I go? She goes, as many generations as you can. And what did you find out from, from doing that? I found out more about my one side of my family. The other one is still really kind of a blank because it was just not, it was really dead end after dead end. She made me do the work. I was doing this. I go, what am I? Can you give me a clue as to what I'm looking for? She goes, things like mission statements, you know, things like this is how this family, what we've always done, and this is how we'll always mm-hmm. be. Or, you know, I use the scenario like, you know what? We've been ranchers for six generations, and you're going to you're going to be a rancher, too. Hmm. That kind of mantle. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's not really that. What I found was something opened up, and I remembered being a child of like five years old and just having uh-huh. this wonder about the entire universe. Everything was just like it was supposed to be. I give this credit to having a really good family upbringing, a good, stable family structure. And I didn't ask the question like, who is God? Where is God? And what is God? I I just went, I'd I'd wake up and I'd go out before sunrise and as the day break, as the day broke, I go, this is, this is everything. That's an amazing realization for a five-year-old to have, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, and I just went, I go, there's, everything is just, the the, or, the universe is in perfect harmony and order. And I heard a guy that I met, the first speaker tape that I ever uh-huh. heard, a man from Annapolis, Maryland, I chased him down later because of my travels, and I met him, spent uh-huh. time with him, went to his home groups, and he said something. He said, I believe that we're all born perfect children of God. He said, with one heart, one mind, and one love. And as we live through our lives, our experiences impact upon us in such a way that allow us to believe that we are less than so. He said, but as we are able to come into this process, he said, once again, we can return to the knowledge that we are perfect children of God with one heart, one mind, and one love. Yeah, yeah. I thought, wow, that's, that's like the whole lifetime, like before drinking, before life, you know, and then everything that goes on, and then what I call recovery. Yeah, yeah. So in that other work that I was talking about, um, I realized something that was really devastating in my childhood was 
was finding my 12-year-old sister, and I was nine years uh-huh. old, who'd had a car accident, and she was near death, and I discovered her in a makeshift hospital oh in gosh. South Texas town that I lived in, and then she died five days later, and everything in my world changed from there on out. How was your childhood to that point in your family? Great. My parents loved one another. You know, my dad was a successful businessman. My mom was a homemaker. She, They were both had a really good relationship. They danced. They challenged one another with thoughts, and they talked things out, and they came to agreements and took action. Was there any alcohol in that in that mix? Well, I mean, they drank, but it wasn't, um, I, you know, I couldn't honestly say that, that they were alcoholic. What I realized later on that I thought that they carried with them was unresolved or undiagnosed and resolved trauma of their lives, yeah. growing up in the Depression, destitute poverty, living through the war, being a part of the war effort and all those other things that we kind of go, well, there was that and then there was that. And now, you know, now they're adults. Well, yeah. And, and especially if there isn't enough tragedy and trauma in our families, we have to look back generations and see where that all came in. So there you were, a nine-year-old kid, and you discover your sister near death and then dying within a period of time. So you went from this life of a relatively happy kid to what? What occurred after that? There was this incredible disruption in my family. My mother seemed to go like off the rails, uh-huh. like mentally. About a year later, my father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, of which within 10 years, he was he had died, but he lost the business. Mm. He was a General Motors car dealer. So it was a, one of the biggest, one of the three biggest businesses in the small town. He got ill enough that he had to sell it, and the family really headed towards destitute poverty. And he basically kind of checked out, as I was observing, I thought, it's like, Dad has just kind of checked out on life. It's like, He's gotten ill enough that he just kind of sits in a room and stares at the wall. And I was one of his caregivers with bedpans and everything else. And meanwhile, the family, as it were, was losing everything. I mean, I, we'd always been brought up to to work. We worked around the house. We had all our things we needed to do. And I was already actually working, so I was making my own money. But it was incredibly traumatic to me at the time. You know, I just thought, well, you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just get on down the road. What were you thinking at the time, Chris, whenever your sister passed away and within the uh, the months and years surrounding that event, were you able to resolve the trauma and uh, the grief that you felt with a, a higher power? In that point in time, when I found alcohol, and with everything going on, because I was, I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school. We were a Catholic family. I was an altar boy. I was a knight of the altar. I was in the choir. I remember asked my mom sometime after Kathy was her name died, I said, Mom, I go, what happened to Kathy? And I realized that I didn't even accept that she was gone for good uh, physically, right, from this from this plane. For a number of years, that was some other trauma that kind of became unlocked in this work that I referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. She said, well, God took her to a better place. And I thought, well, what's wrong with this huh. place? I remember, I remember thinking that to myself. It's one of these few memories that I have that's real profound. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I like this God. Never really thought about him that much. I just lived along and everything was fine until all this started happening. And I realized I was fearful. I I had this fear. I didn't know what that was because it was anger and all kinds of other things and things like that. I don't understand what's going on in the world of my family. And now I'm dealing with the outside world. And that seems really scary to me. Mm -hmm. And I never had those thoughts before all that happened. What's the timing like between her death and you starting to drink? Well, that was about 12, 13 years old that I got hold of some liquor. I went, wow, this is kind of, you know what, this is pretty cool. You know, without without putting the two and two together, it was like all of a sudden I wasn't feeling those things the way I was. Not that they did, that they completely went away. Between 9 and 12, did you struggle to find some kind of homeostasis uh, or, or something to really believe in, or were you kind of aimless at that point? I would say that maybe it was more of a, a searching, because I've always been a pretty busy and active person, um, and I seem to indulge, or so endeavor really, and indulge in a lot of like just activities to busy myself, you know, running and being on my bicycle and being away from home and running in the, in the small town that we were, it was like running through the cotton fields and just doing anything other than being around the home and because it was so unpleasant. And so kind of terrifying, really. I'll bet. I didn't have the context really to to tell you that in the way that I'm telling you that now, but I realized it later um, that that's what that was. This is the great thing about 
when we, you know, with what we have, I think what we're given with the steps and fellowship and sponsorship and all, everything else and meetings, literature, the whole thing. It's like, can you, are you willing, do you see that there is the ability to go back and take a, a, a deeper look, not to live in the past, but to go back and say, what were those things? Because I remember them being profound. And so they go, they had to have a, a real vital impact upon me or unvital impact on me. It helps us understand ourselves better in the present tense, doesn't it? I think it absolutely does. In my family of origin, there was a lot of trauma and violence and abuse and everything else that went on. And this was this was intergenerational because my parents had it worse than I had it and their parents had it worse than they had it. And when you when you take a look back and you say, this happened to me when I was just a little kid and here I am still thinking about it and dealing with it as if it just happened. And it's like, wait a second, that's pretty profound. You know what? That was actually when I did my fifth step with my first sponsor. Uh-huh. The very the t- at the top of my list was uh my first grade teacher. Her name was Sister Carmen. And he said, Who's she? And I told him, he go, Well, what did she do to you? And it was just a you know, everything was like uh, he said, Well, don't keep it simple, you know, <laughs> but there was this started to become this endless list. He goes, Well, he goes, well, hang on a minute. He said, well, so what did that affect? I said, well, everything in the book that asks us to take a look at it, and, and probably a whole lot more. He goes, he goes hang on. I goes, have you talked to her lately? I said, no. Why? He goes, I don't know the way you're talking about it. I thought maybe I had coffee with her yesterday <laughs> or something. <laughs> maybe I had lunch last week or something. And I went, no, that was 47 <laughs> years ago. Oh, I like that. <laughs> he was great in that kind of way. I go, I go, Jesus, I go, I've been carrying this around for, and I didn't really know it until I started doing my step work. And I get in the fourth step, I go, what else is going on with way back when? That's right. And the thing is, what we're really looking for in the fourth step is patterns. When a guy's doing a fifth step with me and he's got, you know, an inch thick pile of paper that he's written everything out and all he's done is change a word here, change a word there. And I'm saying it's the same resentment expressed in a different way. You're using different words for the same thing. There's a pattern here. Let's take a look at the patterns. And it really cuts down the amount of time it takes to listen to a fifth step. But at the end of the day, it's like what you said. You're carrying it around with you 47 years later like it just happened this morning. Exactly. Well, you know, the other part about that, and, you know, in the steps written is the nature of our wrongs. Somebody threw it out. I heard it at a meeting. Someone said, you know, I kind of always looked at it as like, what's been the nature of my re- reoccurring behavior, the pattern, right? What did I do over and over again? I don't even know that I do yeah. that other than all based on the fact of it's a, a resentment based motivation or inability to act any different way. The point at which you started drinking it, you said 12, 13 years old. Yeah. So those are that's like middle school heading into high school. What were those years like for you and how did alcohol play a part in your behavior? Well, I know that we're talking about singleness of purpose here for the for, for this broadcast. Um, wasn't the only things that I had indulged uh-huh. in, but um, I started doing something. Um, I had actually already kind of started doing something. I kind of threw myself more into that because it kind of took me away, which was really what I do today. I've done for 50 years as, a, as a, a, an occupation. That and I also took to uh, surfing. Because I discovered when I would, would he be on a surfboard out in the ocean, it's like all of a sudden my mind went blank. Yeah. And that's how I liked it. But I'd come back into shore and I go, hey, man, there's always a party at the beach. <laughs> and I'd go find all of them and I'd go, hey, give me some of that. Or, hey, do you have some of that? I'd have my own. I go, I go, great. It was just I kind of lived that way. And every day kind of just played itself out that way. Were you living out in California at that time? No, I was down on the Gulf oh, Coast. Oh, OK. Surfing in the Gulf Coast. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a dismal (laughs) prospect. (laughs) Believe me, I go, are you sure that's what you were doing down there? Well, not really. I was doing something really different. Yeah, yeah. um, (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of times on the podcast, I don't I don't go too deep into people's professions, but yours is more than just a profession. It's an avocation. It's a it's it's something that you've got to love to do if you're going to spend the amount of time you do. If you want to mention that and what that's meant in your life. Uh, if you feel comfortable talking about it, we can still maintain your anonymity without having to not talk about it. Well, I mean, I'm in the music uh, business. I'm in the music's been my life. I'm a drummer. And when I when I when I do that and it actually puts me in a place that I can't really describe it, it's pretty wonderful. 
it's it's interaction with people because everything at its best is happening right in the instant. Yeah. Um, even though it plays out over a, a timeline, right, a song or or whatever, but that's um that's a place that when I I get there and it's, and, it, and it can have various degrees of depth mm-hmm. to it. Um, I've experienced three times in my life where it seemed as though all life and 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 time just stopped. And I go, where am I? And who's actually doing this? Were there drugs or alcohol involved at that point? No, no. Well, at one time there was, but the other two times it was all all natural, which is really wonderful. You know, the thing we talked about with this is deep down in, in, inside every child, woman, and man is a fundamental understanding. Uh-huh. I go, there was something about that. I think the same thing that, that in my sense said, wait a minute. I'm not going to let you go this way right now. You're, I'm going to give you a moment to change. I, and, I, and I wonder if that doesn't occur for everybody at some point in time, no matter how many handcuffs or jail visits or marriages or failed business, where they go, you know what? I have a chance here. And you come to that moment of realization, not only that I get a chance to stop this, this has got to stop, but there's actually also an answer. That's a great way to think about it, though. I think you're right that everybody has their moment or moments. And just because they come and go doesn't mean that we don't keep them in in our hearts and in our minds. So it sounds to me like those were transformative experiences for you. They were, absolutely. Well, how did you see yourself acting after that, after those occurred? Did you did you seek out uh, a deeper understanding or, or is that something you just said, well, that's kind of cool. I'll keep that in mind. What, what was your response? Uh, what I got as I was in, in the whole environment right. of Alcoholics Anonymous was that it seemed to me that what I needed to try to find is the things that I wanted to have removed and let go of, as opposed to seeking just new things. Um, because I have this belief, I mean, uh, the, the belief though is, is to me is concrete that the more I can let go of things, all that wonderful stuff just shows up. I think sometimes I, I wonder if that's what people refer to what they refer to as miracles, right? And you go, wow, I never, I never saw that before because I was blocked with all the things that, that are all in our work that say to me, it's like, what can I do to work to have myself unblocked? That's a good way to look at it too, because anytime I found myself with those kind of feelings, I take a look and say, well, where's my surrender in this? And usually it's right there. The surrender is really pretty close by when you're feeling what you're talking about. I get that. Now, when you were in the music business, doing what you do uh, in bands and so forth, to what extent did alcohol help or hinder and in what ways? You know, that's a really good question because my work is extensively documented with the usage of that, all those things. I was in a, a particular experience. This was another part of, um, you know, watching my father die. And then I had an associate that was who led this whole yeah. group of people that we had together. And he died in a tragic accident, which ended the whole thing after 13 years of working mm-hmm. together for something. And he and several other people in the organization had their moment and they were now hmm. sober. At that point in time, I was not. I remember thinking, God, I'm so glad those other guys got sober. <laughs> <laughs> they really needed it. And um, he actually came to me at one point and said, um, the person who died, he said, are you an alcoholic? And I go, no, no. He goes, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure he went. All right. And that was it. That was it. But when he died and this thing we had been working together on for 13 years just ceased Mm. in that moment, that's when I really went off the deep end. What did the deep end look like to you at that point? Oh, blackouts. And to be clear, I was the kind of drinker who would steadfastly not drink or do anything for like two days. And then day three, you know, you were talking about Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday is the weekends just started. I mean, these are kind of these conceptualizations of like how I do and when I do and what I do. And it would end with typically a blackout mm. or me driving off and not knowing where I was going or what I was doing, if I was still conscious and that kind of thing, you know. So you dealing with this trauma once again, did you refeel and resense some of the feelings from your sister's death when that happened to him? 
Uh, you know what? It was it, it unlocked a Did number it. of things. There was his. There was his. The event, him him passing away. And there was my father, and then my sister was one that was really a lot deeper that I had to deny because I was at first obviously in shock, and I actually thought my sister really, even though. <clears throat> She had passed away and there was a funeral and everything that she was probably really like coming back like in a week or two. And I kept thinking she's bound to come back at some point. That's where I was in my psyche and my spirit over all that. And that became started to become unlocked. And um, yeah, and I used it. I mean, I used it to be a self-pitying victim turned martyr. Huh. Yeah. In fact, my first sponsor, excuse the French. You know, we worked through this, and later on, I brought up again. He said, "You know what? I keep forgetting you're the guy that got fucked." He said, "I keep forgetting that. <laughs> because I know you got fucked all these. I know you got. He goes, I, I can't. I thought. I thought maybe we worked through all that. He goes, maybe it's better, but yeah, I, I, I get it. I was like, and I started laughing because it was so true. Yeah, it was one of those moments. Where I go, God, you know what? He's right. I keep like wanting to go back and go. Yeah, but I have a right to feel this way, right? And I go, but I've worked on this. And I have, I guess I have more work to do, i.e. more recovery towards those things to say, okay, have I, and and you know what, somebody helped me do that. And it was probably other than not drinking and just starting to become sober was probably the most profound thing that I ever got to do, which was in a group of people, a super secret group Mm -hmm. was put to the task, if the question, if I was willing to uh, write a letter to my father who had been dead for many years. And I did that and I play acted it out. It took me nine months to do it. She kind of kept saying, how's that letter coming? And I go, it's coming pretty good. And she goes, when was the last time you wrote anything on it? I go, about two (laughs) months ago. You know, I just, I couldn't sit down. What she asked, she said, this is what I would, I would say that you might consider. I was like, Oh God, that's horrifying. You know, everything that you think and have ever felt about him. And it was frightening. It was like looking into the abyss, and you went, I, that's just too frightening. I went, well, that's an interesting observation just all on its own that I observed about me. Wanted to do it. I did that, and it took about nine months, and I actually I actually acted it out with somebody mm-hmm. else in the group, and it was unbelievable. You know, the group gave me feedback, and they said, God, you turned blue, and then you turned pale, and then you start sweating, and then you start hyperventilating. I wasn't aware of any of that. And and when I got done with it, all of a sudden, I felt like a thousand-pound weight that I'd been carrying around since my childhood was lifted off from me. And I had this great feeling. This is an experiential thing about my father and who he had been for me and to me, as opposed to the buried idea of the story I had told myself, like, well, you know, something happened to him, the poor man, all that. But deep down inside, I was angry and I was hateful. And I was, you know, all those things that I could not bear to even admit about it, but they left me. And this was profound. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. I'd done some gestalt work, which is similar to what you're talking about, and uh, with with my father and was able to get through to some of the really deep-seated feelings, some of which I never remembered. I had no recollection of the feelings until they actually came up, and it was it was extraordinary experience. But afterwards, it gave me a little bit more compassion for the man who I didn't believe deserved any of it before I did the work. But doing the work, 
it kind of snaps you back to the reality of God's presence in everybody's life. It's not just victim and perpetrator. This is about father and son. This is about human being and human being. So the fact that you were able to get to that in nine months is pretty amazing. Now, were you in the program at this point when you were doing that work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's somebody had said there's this this person um, and I never had didn't have any idea who she was. They said, well, you know, you maybe you'll meet her someday. And I was like, OK. And um, she identified herself at a meeting one day and she said, I'm so and so. And after the meeting, I ran up to her. Went, I've heard all about you. My friend said you saved his <laughs> life. And she said <laughs> she goes, he'd like he'd like to think that I saved his <laughs> life. <laughs> She goes, she goes, none of that actually happened. I said, she goes, well, who are you? And I said, she goes, what is your name? And I told her, I said, I need help. Can you help me? She goes, honey, we all need help. <laughs> she goes, I can't help you just because you need it. She goes, maybe there's something we can do if you want it. And I went, aren't those two the same thing? <laughs> she, she goes, no, they're not at all, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went, I went, wow, that's an interesting uh, thing. And so by turns, you know, we started doing this work. That's not the typical response that you hear when you ask people in AA to do something with you or for you, for them to for them to kind of come back at you and say, well, you got to want this before I'm even willing to start working with you. So it sounds like she was really well plugged into her own program. Oh, yeah. She's like a, I don't know, she's kind of otherworldly in how she, things come to her. I mean, she really, to me, really exemplifies the idea of, um, to me, what's at the heart of what goes on that Bill and Bob and those people created. Yeah, She doesn't tell me what I need to do. She asks a lot of questions and she's saying, hang on a minute, let's examine something. Mm -hmm. What you just told me, she goes, now, what do you think that means? So it's really, you know, with all that work that I did with her, she posited the idea that I had to do all the work every once in a while she'd kind of say let me see if i can help you here without telling me anything yeah, it's good. what they refer to as leading from behind yeah right exactly yeah yeah i get that well that sounds transformative in your life so that happened how long have you been sober when you did that work um i started that three years sober yeah because that's where the letter and all that came was, was in that work the letter to my father. We're talking about a lot of years here between the time that you started drinking and when you came into the program. You were you were working in the music business. You were traveling the world. Yeah, true. Being exposed to all kinds of different things. Was there anything within that period of time that gave you an inkling that you might have or becoming an alcoholic or you might have the problem? Or were you able to just rationalize that all along? Uh, you know what? I rationalized it completely. In what ways? Well, the person that I spoke about who died tragically, um, he almost died from alcoholism and other things. And that was where everything came to a halt. And three other people said, you know what, we have to change too. And so the idea that uh, to a large degree, everything that him and the other people had partaken in and the way they had lived, and we had lived was something that really didn't have that much to do with me, which was kind of, that's to me, when I look at the second step about insanity, I go, it was absolutely insane on that basis. Was that about your relationship with them, though, or was that about your relationship with the bottle? Well, it was convenient because that was great cover. Yeah, so that may be good for you to stop drinking. You may have the problem. Go at it. I'll be here to support you, but I'm not the guy with the problem. No, exactly. That's kind of how I always, I, I realize that's how I always looked at it. I mean, you know, the business itself at the time was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is what goes on over here. I go, no, it doesn't. Not everywhere, yeah. but it certainly does. When you talk about it, I go, no, this is the way of life. You know, it's like like when you're an athlete, you drink lots of water. Well, when you're a musician, you drink lots of booze. It's just kind of, no, this is how we live. So when that happened and I saw that and experienced that, I thought, that's what I said. I said, it's so good that those guys are doing that. I'm totally in, 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 in full flight insane full flight from reality and like well what are you who are you and and what are you what are you how do you live your life i go you know well, i live my life fine as long as everybody cooperates with me. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah so as you were comparing your insides to their outsides you didn't find a match right away did you no 
You know, it says that the phrase that if we, we thought we could, um, if we could only rest satisfaction in our life, we only managed well. Right, right. That was you. That was me all the time. I have to manage not only, it wasn't me, but it was all my outs, outside circumstances. Everybody, everything. It's like, I need to be able to manage this better and then I'll feel better once that happens. Be in control. How would things have been different if you had stayed on the farm, so to speak, in your life, as opposed to doing what you did? Oh, God, I'd be dead, I think, Howard. Really? I hate to use that term. I don't know that. I mean, that's one of those questions that I, that I don't think can really be answered. But my passion for what I do and what that meant to me was, it was in a way, best I can tell, was it was like my only foothold anchor in any kind of reality that made sense to me. That's an interesting way to put it, too, your your foothold in reality. And yet my guess is that business is one that's fraught with lots of codependent behavior where people are managing what you're doing, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or, or women or whatever. I've talked to a number of, of professional musicians who've said as hard as they tried to stop drinking, there were always all these people around them supporting it that they continued to do it the people around them were doing the very same thing. If it was using drugs or drinking, there was nobody to give any sort of uh, resistance to it. Did you find that going on? Yeah, absolutely. But, but, but the thing that I feel deep down that ate at me was that I was trying to make my whole life somebody else's responsibility. You were talking about codependency. In sobriety, when I have to be responsible for me. So that kind of all came along as one kind of thing, like, well, they're doing it. Even with everything, the way you just described that, I go, well, I guess I've got to do it, which is pretty convenient since I'll probably do it anyway. Uh-huh. And I can blame it on them. I didn't really think that way. That was more of my conscious thoughts. But I go, birds of a feather flock together. You know, you're caught up in the, the group. There's the identity and this is part of it. And you just do what everybody does. And at some point in time, that was where, you know, the moment that I was talking about where someone said, yeah, but you're dead. Huh. I go, I'm dead. Inside, I have died. I don't know what to do with that. I go, all that all that was to me was the long trail that led up to that moment. That's, I actually, I mean, there was a point in time that I, I thought about committing suicide. I had a 357 Magnum revolver in a sock drawer, and I pulled it out about 4 o'clock one morning. I came home once again, drunk and all, you know, high, if you will, and I stuck the gun in my mouth, and I put my thumbs on the trigger, and I went, and then all of a sudden, it, I actually thought that it was God trying to kill me, but that Chris saved himself from God. <laughs> and I went later on. I went, no, well, you that's know pretty what? powerful. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> I know. I know. It is really powerful. He's, he's going to do it to me, too. He did it to my, my friend. He did it to my father. He did it to my sister. And I go, I was, that was a long time ago. But I went, I went, I pulled out. I went, wait a minute. It was another awakening that I go, something's really wrong here. That's feeling sorry for yourself right there, man. That is feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. Yeah. I go, damn. So obviously you didn't pull the trigger. I know. God. How long did that wake up call last you before you started back into the same behavior? Oh, I mean, it was, it was, you know, the next day or two, but I think but I, I look back and go, is this just kind of moving me closer? Did you realize that at the time? Did you realize it was moving you closer? No. It's only in retrospect that you're seeing that? Yes. That's what I think is interesting about recovery and that, um, you know, we look at this with the second step and it's, it came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could, could restore us to sanity. You go, well, what kind of state are you living? Am I living in if, right. if, if I'm insane? Like I recognize all kinds of true things or am I basically living on a basis of somewhat mental and psychological insanity to that degree? Well, getting restored to something that you probably were at one time. I mean, I could see a guy raised to eight, nine years old feeling pretty sane about himself. I mean, some of the things that you told me about being five years old and the revelations that you were having at that age, you might consider that sanity, wouldn't you? Oh, Totally. And the reason that I even brought that up, because it's true. And the other thing is, is that I find myself, I have a, a place out in New Mexico, uh-huh. and I find that I can just go sit out there and sit like that for, you know, an hour or two with no, like, I need to go do this. I need to do that. I go, that's just, that's, that's coming back into my life. You know, it's, it's not, well, now that I'm sober, I can make more money. I can get more stuff. I can, you know, these, the material scale of like, 
time to rebuild and, and uh, accomplish and acquire and attain. And I go, that's kind of never been me, really. You know, my parents did some really profound things to me, and, and I've forgotten all of them. My mother, every once in a while, she'd say, why don't you just try to count your blessings and leave the rest of it alone? And I think about it, I go, that's a pretty good thought to have. And my dad said, he said, you know, they never said anything to me about occupation. They really weren't in the state of mind. I don't really think be able to have the capacity to care on that basis. But as because I think that a person should pursue their passion. And I went, well, that's that. And I remember I asked him, I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because if it's something that you're most excited and, and driven by, excites you most, he said, you'll be able to take a deeper interest in it. Somebody would be, and they'd be able to work more diligently and conscientiously at it. And I think that that probably was probably where they find the best success as a way of living. And then all the things that people seem to want to chase down will just show up as a byproduct of a, a life lived that way. What a profound piece of advice he gave you. How old were you when he told you that? 11, 12 years old. Wow. For an 11 or 12 year old kid to be hearing that and then looking back and seeing to what extent you actually let that influence your life is pretty amazing, isn't it? I guess so, but I hadn't thought about that in so many years, but I thought that's, I guess that's what I did. Like he said that, and that was a time where my dad was like everything to me. I went, that sounds kind of easy. That sounds easier than fighting against something like, I don't want to do it, but they say I ought to. And there was plenty of that actually in my life saying when my father was getting real sick and my dad had a, a, a number of friends. He had a friend that owned an oil company and some other big business people. And uh -huh. some of them were Catholics. It was part of the church, part of that um, fellowship. They had me over for dinner. They say, you know, we've been thinking about some things and you're, you know, you're, you know your dad's real ill and your mom's going to need a lot of help. And you seem very interested in this other way of life. They go, you really need to set that aside and get serious because your mom's going to need help. And I went, I could, didn't, it didn't register with me. Like, should I be supposed to be a lawyer or a big, you know, a businessman or a doctor? Well, it sounds like it conflicted with what your dad just told you. It did. And I thank God that I ever heard that um, because my parents didn't really care about money and materialism, but they, I could see that my dad liked the idea of trying to strive to accomplish something, really not only for himself. I asked him one time, you know, being a General Motors dealership, it, it took a lot for him to put that together. Sure. And I found out that one of his um, salesmen um, made more money than he did. I said, hmm. is that true, Dad? Somebody said something. I goes, yeah, he actually, last year he did. I said, but how could that be? Don't you own the business? He said, son, I'm in partnership with a number of people. And I'll tell you, it might not mean anything. I take a draw annually. He goes, but I'm actually trying to build something bigger than what you see here. And he goes, and it's for me, it's for the family, and it's for everybody who's here. So I went, wow. Sounds like it portended your life in AA when you think about it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's, it's funny how it's at a certain level, like everything is kind of the same thing in a way. Yeah, it's all know? connected. It's, it's all connected. <laughs> That's an amazing, an amazing revelation. What were your first number of years like in AA? I mean, when you first came in, what did you think about the meetings and the people and the, and the literature? I loved it. Did you? Yeah. Of course, I had a lot of fears and things that I had to, this is what we, I'd say what I do with everything that's available. I go, it was daunting and scary. Um, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Where I looked at stuff and I went, yeah, I remember telling my first sponsor, I said, um, I don't have any sponsees. He goes, why don't you go get one? <laughs> I went, well, <laughs> all right. You know, he goes, you go to that meeting in town. He goes, there's like a hundred people there. He goes, sure, there's somebody that needs a sponsor in there or something. <laughs> he goes, so, yeah, it's called this action program. <laughs> Says that in the book. And I went, yeah, all right. We had that conversation. And the next day I went to that meeting and I was sitting there and they go, any newcomers? And they got around to the points like anybody who's looking for a sponsor, a guy raised his hand. And the guy next to me who I never really had, you know, we weren't all that intimate in the program. He elbowed me, he goes, that's your guy. And I went, it is? <laughs> Don't he you goes, love that? <laughs> I know you go, uh, he goes, get up, go over there. I went, okay. And I remember, I remember walking over to the guy and I had, this is funny, I had two different fears as I was walking across the room. Yeah. I go, uh -huh. what if I asked him if I can be a sponsor? And he says, no. And I go, what if I asked him if I can be a sponsor? And he says, yes. <laughs> 
So what was the determination there? What did he do? He said, yo, God, would you? And I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know it was. It was like, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? It's like, well, you got yourself into the real work of the program. <laughs> yeah. But I remember having those two thoughts and those, and all of them were based in like one basic fear, right? I went, wait a minute. Wow, this is heavy, right? Then these these little things that I come across, I go, that's that's an interesting thing to recognize that you're you're afraid that the guy might say no, and you're afraid he might say yes. <laughs> well, you know, the first two guys I asked to sponsor me both said no, and I got so dejected and so demoralized by that that I thought. And this was my thinking at the time. I was only sober for about a year. I hadn't gotten a sponsor yet. I wasn't doing any of the work in the program. All I was doing was going to meetings and not drinking. But I asked the first, the first two guys said no. And I thought to myself, well, I must not be worthy of having a sponsor. I guess I need to go out and get worse so that somebody will take pity on me. And I, I actually thought that. And coincidentally, God put somebody in my life like the next day. It was amazing because somebody said, why don't you just ask God to put somebody in your life? And sure enough, within a few days, the man sat down to me, next to me at the big club here in Houston, and uh, he he made some small talk. I made some small talk. And afterwards, Chris, I felt so, I, you know, we were walking out, and he said, do you have a sponsor? And I felt so bad about being the only guy in the world who didn't have a sponsor that I lied to him. I said, yeah, I got a sponsor. I, and I'm thinking, well, I talked to old Joe over there one time. He must be my sponsor as a result of that. And he looked at me, Mike looked at me, and he said, he said, you don't have a sponsor, do you? And I... In that moment, I just, everything fell away and I said, no, I don't. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll be your sponsor. I thought, oh my God, thank you, God. And then he said, for 30 days. I thought, oh no, here we go. <laughs> He's willing to sponsor me. He's not giving me any more in 30 days. He said, no. He said, look, he said, asking someone to sponsor you is like asking someone to marry you. You know, if they say yes, you're elated. If they say no, you're absolutely devastated and crushed. But if you give it 30 days and at the end of 30 days, things are going well, well, we'll just carry on. And if they're not, well, we only decided to give it 30 days. So it's no big loss. And Mike's been my sponsor for 34 and a half years. It's been an amazing experience. So when you tell me about what happened with you, how long did that last, that relationship with that man? Oh, the one that I sponsored? Yeah four years and then he just disappeared what happened to him did you ever find I out i don't know no i think he was he was moving but he's, he, he sounded good he said no i'm good and that was just kind of that and he said i think i'm good i go okay if you say you are i mean are you are you sure he said yeah no i'm, I'm doing great the interesting thing was that that as i worked with more and more people people came and people went and people stayed and i had this complex like i thought well i'm the guy that it's going to keep them. So Uh-oh. that's not a good way to think. <laughs> no, it's not. But I mean, I was kind of straightened out early on in that I went, no, wait a minute. I'm not the one that decides that. Right. I'm not the one that has any power over that. And so I would imagine this is your experience yeah. too. Uh-huh. me, a lot of people, and they come in and they're sober. And then two weeks later, they go out and you never see him again. And you don't know what happened to him. <laughs> this guy had been done good work and was sober. And then he was moving and, he said, no, I'm good. And I don't know where he is. Huh. I don't know how he is. Um, he told me he was good. And I just said, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you. You call me if you ever need to talk about anything. And I've never heard from him. So once you started sponsoring that first guy, did things start to get easier for you? Did you start to feel more a part of AA? What was that experience like for you? You know, I actually started, what I started feeling was that what was going on in the program, the design for living was starting, was turned real like really real on the deepest level real in a comfortable way or or did it make you uncomfortable how things were suddenly illuminated for you well no it had there was a certain thing that was very very comfortable because i go this is the real true reality of human relationships you know but by the same token you go oh good well i get to oh i get to (laughs) (laughs) thing everything really to me is the, the realization when they've come to me, uh-huh. they're about knowledge and wisdom that's be, that's come through, say, education, however you might come yeah. across it, but actually having the experience so that it's cemented and go, OK, that was real. Because a lot of other things to me have always been kind of um, theoretical or ethereal until I go I put them into a practice and I go, this is the reality of what that really is. What did you find in that experience? So living along is just a series of what were seeming like everyday old experiences, but now they're being experienced in a new way, but a real way. 
and then a different type of understanding and a wisdom and then a realization of what, what that really is, as opposed to what that was when I was drinking. Well, you've expressed that to me today, and I, I certainly get the sense of a man who's got a deep appreciation and a deepening understanding of what it takes to live a relatively happy life by working the program. Uh, when you look back on the 12 years that you've been sober, were there ever times that you kind of veered away or wanted to just take a break from AA, or have you been connected and engaged the whole time? No, I love AA. Yeah. I love it. One of my favorite places to go is to a meeting. I love sitting down with people and just listening to what they might want to tell me. That's enthusiastic, too. And it's contagious. People start seeing a guy who really digs the program. They want that, too. If you could go back, let's say we were looking at Chris in the present moment, knowing what you know in your 12 years of sobriety, in addition to all the other experiences, including your dad's wisdom, if you could go back and talk to yourself at a certain point in your life, what point would that have been and what would you say that would have made a difference? If I had had the capacity, the talk that I would have had is that you have more faith and trust and courage. You have principles. You have a conscience that you're not living out. Which Chris would this be that you're talking to? That would be the Chris that started to transition right after the, the death of my sister. I'm glad you asked this question. It's a great question. It's a really great question. Because my, my parents were principled people. And I look at what we have in our 12th step, which is practicing the principles. To me, that those last three steps are like all important. It's like, am I living that out? Mm-hmm. And do I see when I'm coming up short? Yeah. Do I ask to be filled up with what I'm coming up short with? Mm-hmm. Am I doing that? And um, that and kind of the live and let live and practicing principles mm-hmm. other than the mechanics of, you know, the things that we might have like meetings and sponsorship and service, you know, different kinds of service work. You know, am I trying to understand in a way that I'm effective in somebody else's life? Hmm. I find that when that's not happening, it's because some some principle that I have is kind of weakened in my practice. Yeah, It's a constant thing we talk about daily maintenance i go everything in life to me is daily maintenance we eat every day we breathe all the time we drink water you know we do our work and i go everything is a continuance of like am i maintaining that and you're on the go all the time keeping that framework must be a challenge when you're in a different city one night and a different city the next and try and connect with the program while you're on the road what's that like when i travel my connection with the program is because I meet so many different people and in different situations. In, in, in some respects, every single day is a brand new day. There's not like fixtures and I just go to them and utilize the fixtures in my life. Right. Now, there's some of that, and that's the stability of traveling all over the place. But I meet all kinds of new people in new situations every day. And the question is, when I meet them, if there's something I go, oh, God, you know what? You didn't get the memo. I went all the way down there and the doors locked. Uh-huh. You know, you're not the guy, but you know, you can maybe go get a guy. Go. I try to understand. Okay, well, that would be great. I suppose, where is this? It shouldn't have been this way. You know, that kind of, I used to be like that. Yeah. So I go, that's the moment where the program, I like to call it the design for living, says there's the better angel of yourself. Then it comes more readily. I go, okay, I can understand. Okay, should I wait here? And do, do you want to go find the guy? And um, I'll just wait here by the door. And what do you want? What do you need me to do? What would work best for you? You know, to help me like get into a locked dressing room or something. And I go, oh, okay. Yeah. Would you stay here? I go, yeah, I'll just be here till you come back. And then life goes on and maybe they come right back or maybe they don't. Maybe I need to call somebody, you know, that I can, somebody who will then go track down the person. It's just, so it's constantly evolving, but I hope that I'm evolving also so that I'm not intolerant, impatient, and I don't have any understanding or have lost understanding of the situation that I'm in related to whatever I'm doing and whoever else is involved in my life. And to me, that's the that's the whole thing of the program. I so appreciate you saying that. I mean, you and I just met just a you know a little over an hour ago, and yet I can hear what you're saying and and watch you on the screen and see your enthusiasm and say, this is a man with a loving disposition. So whether you're dealing with somebody to get a door opened or something much, much more major than that, 
you've learned something in AA that's put you into a position to be able to express whatever you're doing with love. Is that a fair statement? You know what? It is more of the time who I try to just tell you who I I see myself as somebody who's becoming more and more of. Yeah. Because I'm not perfect. And there is the term recovery. Life is a long haul. Um, it's a constant thing of trying to be aware and do better things as they're contextualized in principles. Then I come up short, but to stop myself and go, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> you, didn't need, you didn't need to say that, even if you're just having some fun and you go, that's eh, not a good kind of a joking around or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, like I'm not that guy. Yeah, wait a minute, I don't want to be that guy because it's better to not be that guy, even though sometimes I have fun being that kind of guy, but there was no call for it. It's not nothing bad, but I go, I just... Yeah, no, no, I don't know. Don't don't be that guy. I remember I got that because once in a while, somebody who would come into a meeting and they would share. And this is great sharing. It kind of so fabulous yeah. to listen to people's uh-huh. experience. I said, well, you know, I was driving over here the, and a guy jumped up in front of me in line. I flipped him off and told him to go F himself. He goes, hell, but, you know, I was coming over here. I came so I could come over here and tell him myself. I go, I'm thinking, well, why, why did Chris, why don't you back up before you actually did that and say, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then I don't have to just go to the meeting, go ahead and tell on myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. Better to not do it than to have to go in and admit that you did it, right? <laughs> yeah, let's go. That's, that makes life so much easier, like right off uh, instantly. Yeah. I go, that's something to strive for. Don't do that. Whatever that is, you know. What a great way to live your life, huh? Yeah, and I find myself like, you know, in Austin when I'm home, I find myself like in Mopac traffic and all kinds of things going on. I go, well, I guess that's how it's going today as opposed to get out of my way. You know, like, what's that? You know, I'm not perfect, but I got like it when I can be caught in traffic. I'm going, oh, all right, well, this is okay. I go, is it? What happened to you? <laughs> I remember years years ago, I started listening to books on tape. And I, I've listened to every classic read on tape. And the cool thing about that was when I was in Houston traffic, I actually looked forward to a traffic jam because I'd be so into <laughs> listening. Then, you know, I'd, I'd park my car and stay in my car for an extra 10 minutes to hear the next chapters. It was always good to be able to find a way to, to calm yourself down in those situations. Well, you know, in wrapping up here, Chris, I just wanted to ask you one one other thing as pertains to your overall program. Is there anything now, given that you've been sober for 12 years, that you look forward to doing more of or less of so that you could be more available? What what does your program at 12 years look like going forward? Yeah, the biggest question in my mind is how I could be able to contextualize this and not do what I do so regularly yeah in my in, in playing because um and i've been struck i've actually been struggling with this and once again this comes back to a faith and a trust and a courage because i've had a few periods where i had all the so-called life freedom yeah and i actually went out and enjoyed the nothingness that i did with it or spending more time around the rooms or with people in the program or just doing things that i've always liked to do you know, being out in nature, fiddling with my car, mm-hmm. you know, going swimming, all kinds of things. So cooking, I love to cook. I cook a lot. Right now I go, you know what, tonight it'd be really great to be home making a meal for my wife. Hmm. I go, but I'm out here doing this. I go, well, maybe I should do less of this if I if I can actually get there to be able to do that. It's a big question. I'm glad. It's a great question that you asked. You know, what you're talking about you're, you're having a realization of what you could or should be doing while you're doing something else. I don't know that that necessarily says you shouldn't be doing the something else, but just having that realization lets you know an awful lot about yourself and where you are in your program, doesn't it? It does. You know, and, I, and what I have found in my experience is that when that, that question has a real answer to it, I know when it arrives and I, and I answer it. That's how I've really been. It might take a long time. It reminds me of, um, I think, what Winston Churchill said about the Americans during the Second World War. He said, usually the Americans make the right decision when they've exhausted all other possibilities. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. That, 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 is a, that is a classic. That is a classic line. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so, but, you know, you know, that first sponsor, I was with him just a few days before he died. 
and we were taking turns watching over him because he was on chemo and he was going into these these I call them like they're these chemo comas and then he'd raise up and he goes like I don't even know who God is do you I go oh no I know he goes he goes all I know is he's taking care of me for 30 years he goes I think I've only learned one thing in my whole life I said what's that he said like it just takes what it takes and you know when you know <laughs> you know that old, and then he fell back like that in the bed and went out for several more hours and went boy that's true you'll know when you know and it's hard for me to know i go i can't know other i can't know until i know yeah isn't that the voice of an angel coming your way uh, yeah, I'd say so. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you know, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Chris, and getting to know you a little bit better. My hope and my prayer is that there will be some people out there listening to this podcast who will be touched by your words. I know I have been in the time we've spent together, and you're a really beautiful man, and I think your program reflects it. The men that I know who know you certainly reflect that, and uh I just honor and respect your sobriety and your willingness to stay in the middle of the program. And uh, as I tell all my guests, I love you because there's plenty of love for everyone. And I'm hoping that you and I will have the opportunity to spend some time together face to face, knee to knee, eyeball to eyeball somewhere down the road. I would love that, Howard. I'm getting emotional here because I've had a great, a great time, a great experience doing this with you. Well, thanks again, Chris. And uh, God bless. God bless you, too. Thank you for having me. You bet. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Chris L., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this podcast series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more excellent episodes in our AA Recovery Interviews podcast series catalog. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 